more about God's faithfulness, actually, in the flood. To send the flood, to preserve Noah through the flood, and what he also said after the flood. And the part of the flood that we're going to focus on today was is simply the question, was the flood global? Before we get to that, though, some quick addendums, three quick addendums to last week's lesson. I talked with uh, some of you after the lesson about certain things I thought would be useful to share with the whole group. You remember last week we discussed, we spent some time talking about the flood, but also spent some time talking about the sons of God in Genesis 6. And I had made the case, you will remember, that the sons of God there were angels who transgressed by desiring and marrying human women. And these angels were able to do so by possessing men's bodies. After the lesson last week, a couple of people asked me about angels' bodies in the Bible. We see many instances in both the Old and New Testaments of angels having real bodies. Angels eat food with Abraham. Angels physically rescue Lot. They grab him and they lead him out of the city. An angel strikes Peter's side to wake him up in the New Testament. So they obviously have real bodies, but where did they get them? They were not merely possessing other men's bodies, were they? Can angels create bodies for themselves? Well, according to the Bible, God is the only creator. All things are made by Christ and for Christ. So it's not that angels create bodies for themselves, though they clearly have bodies. They clearly have real bodies. In each instance as an, where an angel appears as a man, God must have created a temporary body for that angel. But what about the fallen angels? Well, demons cannot create bodies for themselves, and God apparently does not create bodies for them either. He certainly would have no obligation to. In fact, every time we see demons taking, or whenever, every time we see demons or evil spirits taking a physical form in the Bible, how do they do it? By possessing something else. Satan possesses a serpent. Demons at one time possessed pigs and caused them to go into the water. And many times, of course, demons also possess men, injuring them and using them for dark purposes. So this is why I suggested to you last week that the way these sons of God, these angels who transgressed, the way that they accomplished the human marriage was by possessing human beings, by possessing men. They did not actually have physical bodies because they could not create physical bodies for themselves. They had to use someone else's. Yeah, Eric. Yeah. Okay, so your question, Eric. If demons were angels before they sinned, did they have bodies before they, before they sinned? What I'm trying to present is that angels of any kind don't actually have physical bodies. They're spirits. However, when God sends them to minister, when God sends his angels to minister in certain ways in the world, he gives them real bodies. He gives them physical bodies, temporary human bodies. However, demons, he does not do that for. So they don't actually, to to answer your question directly, they don't have bodies whether fallen or unfallen, angels don't actually have bodies. They're only given temporary bodies to use. Another thing I wanted to mention, based off of last week's lesson, is that those who support 
an alternate view of the passage in Genesis 6, that is the Sethite view, that those first four verses are actually talking about godly men intermarrying with godly women. They look at passages like 1 Peter, 2 Peter, and Jude, the ones that we talked about last week, and they say that those passages are not referring to a special group of angels, but are referring to all rebellious angels. All the rebellious angels were cast down out of heaven, and that's not talking about a particular group. But if you remember the actual text of those verses, why can we say that that cannot be the case? These verses that are Second Peter 2, 1 Peter 3, and Jude 6, how can, they, how can we know that they can't be talking about all angels? Perhaps those texts are not fresh in your minds, but let me just remind you of what they said. 2 Peter 2.4 says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. There's that verse. And then 1 Peter 3.19-20, In which he also went, that's talking about Christ, and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark. Jude 6, and angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Listening to those texts, what details in them show you that it cannot be applying to all rebellious angels? Yeah, Roy. That's right, and the... the passage from Second or First Peter 3, it says those disobedient spirits, they were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. So there's, some, there's a time actually attached to that one. But there's something else. That's a good observation, Roy. Notice the descriptions of imprisonment, confinement. When it says the angels were cast into hell and committed to pits of darkness, does that not imply a permanent place? A permanent confinement? Or when Jesus goes to make the proclamation to the spirits in prison? Well, why did he have to go make proclamation? Wouldn't they have just known if these demons were out and about, just like the rest? And Jesus went to them because those spirits didn't have any way to find out about what had really happened. And in Jude, it says that they are kept in eternal bonds. Again, doesn't that imply an an eternal confinement? If Satan and all rebellious angels, as some maintained, are now chained and imprisoned, then why are they described in the scriptures as being so active? How is it that they're able to go around our world? Why do we see such rampant wickedness and deception? And if they were cast into hell and committed to pits of darkness, and yet they can be so active, how did they get out? That seems like a pretty ineffective judgment. Hardly the comfort and warning that Peter and Jude are trying to communicate to their audience. They say, remember what God did to these angels. This is what he's going to do to false teachers. Well, if those fallen angels can go to and from their prison as they like, again, that seems like a pretty ineffective judgment. Moreover, as some of you may be thinking, there's at least one time in the Bible where demons 
specifically say, don't send us into the prison. Please don't send us into the prison. Luke 8.31, Legion implores Jesus not to send them into the abyss. Why would he do that? Why would he be so fearful if he could easily come right back out of that prison and still be active in the world? So for those reasons, I would, I would say that we cannot see those angels, spirits in those passages describing, or we cannot see the imprisonment described in those passages as, to, as applying to all angels, just a special group that was imprisoned because of disobedience in the days of Noah. One more thing, one more addendum. Last week, I cautioned you when it comes to seeing the ark as a type of Christ. Perhaps you were thinking to yourself, but doesn't the Bible itself make the connection between the ark and Jesus? Well, if the Bible does identify types for us, then we certainly are justified in exploring and using that type. And the passage you may be thinking of is the one that we've partly already mentioned. That's from 1 Peter. Actually, open your Bibles to 1 Peter 3. I want you to see this for yourselves. First Peter 3, we read part of it just a little bit earlier. I want to read verses 18 to 22 to you. Because there is a connection between the flood of Noah and Christ here. Verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Now, some interpreters look at this passage and they say, well, see, look, Jesus is identified with the Ark of Noah that saved them and brought them through the flood. That's actually what the MacArthur Study Bible says in the, in the notes. That may be, but I have reason to hesitate. I think we also have reason to hesitate because verse, 20, verse 21 says, corresponding to that, and that there, I believe, is, the, is referring to Noah's family being saved from the waters of the judgment of the Ark. Corresponding to all of that, no being saved in the ark, what now saves you? Baptism. That's a strange comparison. Peter doesn't say what we expect. He doesn't say, Jesus is the ark that now brings you through the waters of God's judgment. No, he says, water, metaphorically, is our salvation. Now, the passage is not saying that you need to be baptized to be saved. This, as you see in the latter part, he says, it's not the removal of dirt from the flesh, it's about your conscience, and it's about Christ's resurrection. However, the analogy of Noah's salvation to the experience of baptism and salvation in Christ, I think, is a little complicated. It's not simply, oh, Jesus is the ark. So that's why I say, even with this passage, we should be cautious about simply applying the ark as a type for Jesus. Clearly, though, as we noted last week, there are consistent gospel principles between the judgment of Noah and the final judgment of Jesus questions or comments about these addendums? Okay. Just
just wanted to clarify those things. Two more review questions, then we'll hit today's material. We noted last week the level of detail in the timing of the flood. Talks about the day of the month, talks about which month things happened. What do these details suggest about the kind of literature the author is presenting to his audience? That it's history, right? He's presenting it as history. Otherwise, those time details, they would seem out of place. We also saw last week how emphatic the text is about how every land and air creature, apart from those on the ark, died during the flood. Since that is the case, how much of the earth must have been covered with the waters of the flood? How much? All of it, right? The flood must have been global. It must have covered the entire surface of the globe if it destroyed all land-dwelling creatures. So already in these last two lessons, we're seeing things, or we're seeing that the flood is presented in Genesis as an actual historical event, and that it was a global cataclysm. But could Moses have been exaggerating when he said all of the creatures on earth died? Could he have only meant the creatures in a certain area? All in that sense. It's a limited all. Is it possible, actually, an alternate view, is it possible that all land creatures and people were affected because they only lived in a certain area, say, a valley? And therefore, when the local flood came, it did destroy all flesh because there was no flesh anywhere else. Is that possible? Well, let's now confront those evasions head on as we ask, was the flood global? With the rest of today's lesson, we're going to look to answer that question by re-examining some of the descriptions in Genesis 7 and 8, testing the rainbow promise of God in Genesis 9, and then examining flood legends from around the world to see how they interact with what the Bible says. Let's pray before we continue. Oh God, you are true, you are the creator, you are the judge. Lord, we thank you that you've revealed yourself to us and that we know you. Ultimately, God, that's why we believe. Lord, we can point to certain things now that we understand. Remarkable facts about your Bible. Various things in the world that support what your Bible says. But ultimately, God, we believe it because you've shown it to us. You've opened our eyes to your word and we say, this is real. God, I pray that you'd give us eyes to understand what is true and real about your flood. And Lord, I pray that we can use the flood and all the truths of your word to share with others so they might believe. So God, that you would open their eyes to reality. Lord, give me the ability to explain in this lesson. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's start in Genesis 7. So, turn over there. Turn from 1 Peter back down to Genesis 7. We're going to look at three sets of verses just to refresh ourselves with some of the descriptions of the flood. We read the whole flood narrative last time. These three sections that I've highlighted for you, they're going to be relevant for answering the question, was the flood global? So pay attention as we start in verse 11 in Genesis 7. Verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open, and the floodgates of the sky were opened. 
the rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. Now jump down to verse 17. We'll read to 24. Then the flood came upon the earth for 40 days, and the water increased and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. The water prevailed and increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. The water prevailed more and more upon the earth, so that all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered. The water prevailed 15 cubits higher, and the mountains were covered. All flesh that moved on the earth perished, birds and cattle and beasts and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth, and all mankind. Of all that was on the dry land, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, died. Thus he blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things, and to birds of the sky, and they were blotted out from the earth, and only Noah was left, together with those who were with him in the ark, that water prevailed upon the earth 150 days. And then finally, just the first two verses of chapter 8. But God remembered Noah, and all the beasts, and all the cattle that were with him in the ark, and God caused a wind to pass over the earth, and the water subsided. Also the fountains of the deep and the floodgates of the sky were closed, and the rain of the sky was restrained. Okay, we'll stop there. Let's ask some observation questions of the text, as is our custom. By the way, if you have your workbooks, you can follow along, take notes on page 24. All right, let's start with this question. What words or ideas are repeated in those verses that we just read? What's something that is repeated in those verses? Okay, the number of days, uh, particularly of the rain, 40 days and 40 nights, but also that the water prevailed for 150 days. Very good. What else is repeated? The earth. Okay, yeah, several references to the earth here, the earth in those sections. That is repeated. What else? Okay, the word all, you certainly know all and every are repeated many times in this section. And that fits with what we saw last week when we talk about death everywhere, very inclusive language. But you also mentioned the fountains. Twice we have here the fountains of the great deep and the floodgates of the sky mentioned. And we also see the words prevailed and increased when referring to the water. Now, from where did the waters of the flood actually come? Yeah, Rob? That's right. So just those two phrases that I just mentioned. Fountains of the great deep that burst open and the floodgates of the sky and water comes down. Now, how high did the waters rise, according to this passage? That's right. So it says 15 cubits above the highest mountains. It prevailed, it covered the highest mountains, and prevailed 15 cubits higher. How long is the cubit again? That's right. So remember, it's the length of your elbow to, your to the end of your fingers, and that's about 18 to 20 inches. Or that, that was the average measurement at that time. That would be about the measurement at that time. Okay, a little math question here, or maybe you can just use your study Bible if it says. If the water prevailed 15 cubits of, above the highest mountains, then how many feet is that? About 
about 22 to 25 feet, right? If we take the cubit as 20 inches, 15 times 20 is 300 inches, inches, 300 inches divided by 12 inches per foot is 25 feet. It's a little more than 20 feet, probably around 22 to 25 feet. So there's water, more than 20 feet of water above the highest mountains. Yeah, Ram. Ah, that's the question I'm just about to ask, Rob. <clears throat> uh, how can the water be that much higher and still be in a local location? Well, let's imagine the situation. Imagine a valley surrounded by high mountains with the ark sitting in the middle. Let's say a flood only happens in that valley. The waters begin to rise, and so does the ark. And finally, the water reaches the tops of the mountains. What happens to the water, or what would happen to the water, if it rises even slightly above the tops of those mountains? it's going to spill over into the other side. So is it possible for water to cover, the, cover mountains by more than 20 feet and still be only contained in the valley? No, it's not possible. You'd have to have something like this, which I don't think anybody would say is what happened. <clears throat> so clearly that would be absurd. Let's interpret this information a little bit more. Besides the description of universal death, what from this passage plainly indicates that the flood was global? We just talked about it. Yeah, Eric. Yeah. Yeah, thanks, Eric. Certainly the universal language, once again, not just about the what died, but also about where the water came from and other things in the text. Certainly that inclusive language, but also more simply, what we've just had a graphic about, the idea of the water covering the highest mountains. Isn't that plain? Isn't that plain that the flood must have been global if it covers the highest mountains by more than 20 feet? And certainly, causing a global flood is not beyond the ability of God. A couple other interpretive questions. The phrases fountains of the great deep and floodgates of the sky are metaphorical. There's no actual gate in the sky. So what do they actually refer to? What are the fountains of the great deep? They must be. Yes, yeah, some sort of spring underneath the ocean crust that bursts open. And what would the, the floodgates of the sky be? That's just simply referring to rain, right? And it says the rain came down for 40 days and 40 nights. So these phrases refer to rain from the sky and springs of water under the oceans. These ocean springs were probably, as it mentioned, within the crust of the earth. So that means that the water that came out was very likely hot and may have caused rain clouds to form. And based on these verses and their context, could the author of Genesis been intending, could he have been intending to communicate that the flood was local and not global? No, that's not a possibility in the text. It's not like, well, maybe you could see that. No, that's not an option. With the descriptions of the water, with the descriptions of the death, with the very inclusive language, it's not possible that he meant, or he could have communicated a local flood. Now, some have asserted. Some have asserted that the flood was local, but it had universal effects. 
they assert that all of those who were affected by the flood lived in the same place as Noah. Therefore, when this local flood came, all the creatures on the earth were affected because they were all living in that local area. And this assertion allows a person to seemingly confess the global effects of the flood described in the text of Genesis, while also keeping in t- intact his presupposition that the fossil layers observable today are built up by millions of years of undisturbed, or built up of millions of years of geological processes undisturbed by the flood. But why should we reject the assertion that the flood was local but had global effects? Yes, Dwayne. Oh, that's a good question. Yeah, a good observation, Dwayne. If you're saying that all creatures lived in a place with Noah, they only lived in a local place, then why are there so many fossils outside of that area? That's a good question. That's a fair objection. What else should cause us to reject this assertion? Yeah, Bill. Mm. Right. That's another great observation. More basic to the question of, or more, more basic to the problem of the local flood. As Bill mentioned, birds could easily have avoided that by migrating but specifically to this idea that there's a local flood with global effects, I think migration is also relevant because consider how much time has gone by between creation and the flood. According to Archbishop James Usher's, I think James Usher is his name, his timeline, Answers in Genesis uses, creation would take place around 4004 B.C. and the flood around 2348 B.C. That's more than, or that's about 1650 years after creation. Should we accept that in all that time, no animals and no people lived in a different area than Noah? No, that doesn't make sense, right? The, let me, um, yeah, considering the extremely long lifespans of man and animal, or I don't know about animals, but certainly of man, and their reproductive capability, it makes no sense to say that people only lived in Noah's area. As Bill mentioned, birds could easily fly, flown to another area, and things, animals and people have a tendency to spread out. So certainly that, that presupposition, that assumption that everybody would live in one area doesn't really make sense. And then there's, there's simply the descriptions of global water coverage, as we just noted, 20 feet above the highest mountains. So it doesn't make sense for us to say a local flood had global effects. Sarah, oh yeah, Francisco. People who say a local flow with global effects, what do they base their position on? I would assume that with all kinds of reinterpretations of Genesis, that it's based on what scientists say, based on the geological presuppositions. So they're looking for a way to unite that with what they see in the biblical text. They say, oh, this language here is pretty global about the death, but we know what the rock layers say, so it's got to be a local flood, or it's got to be, as we'll see later, it has to be a tranquil flood, that it was global and it did destroy everything, but it didn't affect the rock layers at all. 
are they believers? Well, I'm, I don't have any specific people in mind, but I think it's certainly possible for believers to, to believe something like that, but it's inconsistent, right? It's inconsistent with um, treating the Bible as the authority that believers ought to. But that's a good question. Yeah, Dwayne. That's a really great point, Dwayne, just to restate it briefly. Uh, what we see with these variant views on, on the flood, local flood, tranquil flood, mythical flood, it's simply because people have already erred in how they viewed creation when they're, they're trying to fit millions and billions of years into creation. And so by extension, they must also change the way that they view the flood. They can't see it as a global flood because that would disturb the rock layers, that would change the fossil record and uh, they no longer could use it to, de to determine the age of the Earth as being billions or millions of years old. So yeah, it's definitely a good example of how, um, how erring in one area can, can lead to others. Uh, yeah, Francisco, briefly. a good question, Francisco. I will say something a little bit later in the lesson, but basically that, that excuse, like, oh, I'm just not sure. I think it's ambiguous. I'm not really, um, or actually, let me restate your question. People who say they affirm a global flood, is that what you're saying? They affirm a global flood. They, they affirm the things that the Genesis um, 6 through 9 say, but they're still not sure in creation. I think that, again, that's inconsistent because if the flood was global, then that invalidates the view, um, that invalidates the points of view that say that creation was not six literal days. Uh, to say that creation was not six literal days is to subscribe to some view supported by the presuppositions of geological uniformitarianism. And that view does not believe in a global flood. So perhaps it is not connected in that person's mind, but if you have a global flood, then the things that support a non-literal view of the six days of creation they don't make sense. But people are sometimes good at believing inconsistent things in their minds. But they just haven't really, a lot of times, they just haven't really seen the connection. 
They haven't actually, or even when it comes to the text, they haven't actually seen the details of the text and seen that, oh, they actually can't fit with that point of view that you were holding in your mind. These are good questions, but we do need to move on. So we're already seeing, just from the descriptions of the water in Genesis 7 through 8, that the flood must have been global. But what about the rainbow? Let's talk about the rainbow. It should be clear by now that Moses really, or Moses communicates the flood really happened and it was global, but there's more. Because God's covenant involving the rainbow in Genesis 9 also proves that the flood was global. And let me show you how. Let's examine that passage. Let's read verses 8 to 17 in chapter 9. Recall the context here. The flood has lasted for a little more than a year. Noah and his family and the animals have just come out of the ark. Noah has offered a sacrifice to God. God is pleased by the aroma, and he makes a number of promises, including this, starting in verse 8. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that comes out of the ark, of every, even every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood. Neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you, and every living creature that is with you, for all successive generations. I set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth, that the bow will be seen in the cloud, and I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Okay, start with some observations. This is God speaking to Noah and to his sons. But with whom is this covenant? It is with mankind, but not just mankind. All flesh, right? Even the animals are included here. Noah, his sons, their descendants, and all the animals on the earth. All the land, air-breathing animals. So, okay, so there's that. Who establishes this covenant? God says, I will establish this covenant. What's promised in the covenant? Right, he says, I will never destroy... All flesh with the waters, just as I did with the global flood. Remember also, in the previous chapter, chapter 8, verse 21, God said this, because it's a little bit different language and it forms a little bit more. Chapter 8, verse 21, The Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. I will never destroy again in the same way that I have just destroyed. What are the terms that keep this covenant in place? Right, this is another example of a unilateral, unilateral covenant. There are no terms. And from the verse I just mentioned, you may notice that God actually acknowledges that man is going to continually be evil. Man is wicked from his youth, and yet I establish my covenant with man and with the animals. And God even calls this covenant an eternal covenant. I establish it, and it's going, to be, it's going to be permanent. What is the purpose of the rainbow? 
Right, it's a sign of the covenant. And it's a sign, even though God specifically tells it, speaks about it as a sign to himself. He says, I'll remember when I see the rainbow, and I'll remember my covenant not to destroy you. But certainly, this would also be for man, right? This is for man to see that the rainbow, when he sees the rainbow, he says, oh, the covenant's still in place. That's a good thing. How long ago was this covenant given? Well, if it was around 2,348 B.C., that means about how many years ago? More than 4,000. About 4,400 years ago. Are rainbows still evident in the sky today? They are. All right, let's draw some interpretive conclusions. Has there ever been another flood that covered the entire globe since God made this covenant? No, clearly not. Yeah, Rob. Okay, what's your question? Before the flood? Ah, that's a really good question. Were there rainbows before the flood? Well, let me say this. Some people have said, yes, because there was rain before the flood. Uh, there, were certainly, or there could have been rain after the fall. God said that there would be weeds after the fall, and they're going to flourish in rain. And one of the things that we're told in Genesis 3, I believe it is, not Genesis 2, that there was no, um, that it had not yet rained on the earth. Now, we know from our processes, from what we understand about physics today, that rain is what produces the rainbow. It's the water moisture in the air. And so they say, it's okay, though, for God to say, I'm now making the rainbow mean something different because we see other examples in the Bible where God gives new significance to things that already existed. For example, Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper. He says, this now means something different to you. However, that, that does seem a little bit problematic because if a rainbow existed before the flood, and then the flood came, and God says, oh, don't worry, when you see the rainbow, you know a flood's not going to come. I don't know how comforting that would be. Because you're like, if there was a rainbow before and a flood came, I don't, how do I know that God's really going to keep his word? So I'm inclined to think that the rainbow was a new thing. Now, whether there was still rain before the flood, and it just didn't produce rainbows, or whether it did not rain before the flood, I'm not sure. But I, I would think that the rainbow was a new thing. Yeah, Francisco. Probably, yeah. So that would be the way you have to explain it. If there was rain but no rainbows before the flood, then the physical conditions of the earth presumably would have to change. But that's okay, because as we were learning through Genesis, things were very different in these times. And that's been emphasized many different times in the, in the Genesis text. But anyways, let me, uh, let me continue. There hasn't been another global flood. So this covenant ent- emphasizes which attribute of God? rainbow emphasizes God's faithfulness, right? And that's actually a really sweet thing if you really think about it. The rainbow is a great sign of the faithfulness of God. And it's, he's demonstrated that for more than 4,000 years. He says, I keep my word to you. It's because he's a good God. But have there been local floods that have devastated vast areas of land, killing man and animals, even most man and animals, men and animals, in various areas? There have been many, right? And they still happen, killing hundreds of thousands of people. So how does believing in a local flood in Genesis 6 to 9 cause God to be an unfaithful covenant breaker? Yeah, Eric. 
Exactly. If God brought a local flood in Genesis, and he says, I'll never flood the earth again and destroy all flesh just like I did, then he's a liar because he has brought many local floods since then, devastating floods that have killed men and beasts in, in, in areas and almost or wiped them out or close hurt their populations severely in areas. So, the rainbow would be the greatest sign of the hypocrisy of God if the Genesis flood were local. Because God says, this is the sign that I'll never send another flood like I just sent. So you're seeing by now, there are many, many problems with trying to make the Genesis flood anything other than a global cataclysmic flood. Just to summarize, the language of Genesis emphasizes universal destruction. The description of the rising water makes a local flood impossible. The Rainbow Covenant makes any promise about no more, no more local floods a lie. And moreover, and I think Bill was getting at this earlier, if a flood were a local event, then an ark wasn't necessary at all. What could Noah and the rest of the people do to escape the flood? Just move. Migrate. It's not that hard. Also, the ark was, one of the things God says the ark was intended for, was for preserving life so that it could repopulate the earth. But if the flood was local, how could you repopulate without the ark? How could you make sure that in that local area the populations were flourishing again? It's simple. Just move back, right? If you move the way to escape the flood, just move back. And that's, that's a pretty easy way to repopulate that area. People and animals who weren't affected could simply move into that area and repopulate it. So the whole flood judgment and the ark salvation seems needlessly sloppy if only a local flood were in view. But in spite of all this, as you know, and as we just mentioned, Many Christian teachers assert a local flood has happened, or that a local flood happened, or they are open to its possibility. But how can that be? It's so clear from the text that it can't be a local flood. We've already said the answer. It's because they wish to accommodate secular thinking. They accept the presuppositions of these anti or these Bible disbelieving geologists and scientists. And so they have to reinterpret the Bible. And this has been the case since the early 1800s, as you've already heard me explain in other classes. Christians started to, in the advent of geological uniformitarianism, they started, or these geologists said there was no evidence of a global flood in the fossil record. There was only evidence for gradual geological change over millions or billions of years. And so Christians, they just started reinterpreting the Bible because man's claims were just too authoritative. You just couldn't argue against the science. That's what they said. And they put man's authoritative claims above the Bible's authoritative claims. And so, people like Thomas, Thomas Chalmers, you may remember his name, he's the inventor of the gap theory. He, he had to find a new way to interpret the biblical text. Not using the biblical text, not using the clues in the biblical text, but using something outside the text. Others, like Friedrich Schleiermacher, for them... This meant that they had to deny the historicity of the Bible. It wasn't simply, oh, we need to reinterpret it. They said, eh, it's not really true. I mean, the Bible, this is what Schleiermacher ultimately said, the Bible is a bunch of made-up stories to make us feel our dependence on God. He's real, but we can't really know anything about him from this unreliable Bible. 
This is just to kind of get us feeling dependent on him. I saw a hand. Roy. That's a good point, Roy. For many of these people who, who don't want to acknowledge a global flood, you can understand the connection between acknowledging that and acknowledging your sinfulness, acknowledging God as creator and judge, and acknowledging you need to be made right with him. And I think we can actually see that concept in, in more ways today. Like some of these groups who are, are touting various scientific, scientific ideas, things like homosexuality is something genetic, or certain psychological theories we have to acknowledge that at, at the root of many of these ideas is just a desire to disbelieve the Bible and to get away from what the Bible says. It really is just so strange that many Christians, since the 1800s, still today, they go to people who disbelieve the Bible and want to get away from the Bible, and they accept what those people say over what the Bible actually says. That just doesn't make sense. Let us not follow in their footsteps. Let us rescue others from following in their footsteps. Let us not for a moment vacillate on anything in which the Bible makes plain. Yes, the flood is not necessary. A global flood is not necessary to believe for salvation, but it's about the authority of the scriptures. Can we believe what the Bible makes plain? The flood was not a local flood in Mesopotamia or a flood on the edge of the Black Sea. Biblical text does not support that interpretation. Neither was it a tranquil flood, as I said, one that was global but did not disturb the millions of years of fossil record billions of years. This kind of tranquil flood would be contrary to the laws of physics. It would require God to miraculously keep the flood calm for its duration and then remove the waters without any major erosion, erosion taking place. Moreover, the biblical text does not imply calm when it says the fountains of the deep burst open and the floodgates, floodgates, not just some rain fell, but floodgates were opened in the sky. That's a tumultuous time on the earth. So it's not local. It's not tranquil. And it's not mythical. It's not a grand allegory or legend from Moses. It was presented as detailed history by Moses. It's affirmed by the apostles. It's affirmed by God himself. Jesus in the New Testament uses the flood as an analogy in the Gospels for his own coming judgment. He says, just as it was in the days of Noah, when the flood came and destroyed them all, so it shall be on the day of the Lord when Jesus comes to judge the flood really happened, and the flood really was global. But what, or let me, let me say this, since the flood did happen and was global, what would we expect to find in the world as a result? Right, that's uh, quoting our man Ken Ham. Yeah, we expect to find billions of dead things uh, laid down on the ground all over the world, and that's what we do, right? And we can even be more specific. We, we expect to find marine fossils in strange places. And we do. It's actually funny that if you go back to even the early church and some of these second century apologists, they mention these fossils. The Greeks and others at the time, they thought that when you found a marine fossil at the top of a mountain that it was like a, uh, it was like a joke of nature. Like the gods just wanted to do that to be funny. And they're like, hey, look, a marine, here, a marine animal way up here. But the Christians acknowledge, no, actually, this is just um, part of the result of the flood. Even back then they acknowledged that. But there's something else that we should expect if the flood was global. What, what else? 
right, we would expect that because everyone on the earth was affected and only those who survived were the ones who were specifically um, saved by God from the flood, that the story of this great flood would get passed down. We would expect flood legends across various cultures. Only four families were left to repopulate the earth after the flood. Their descendants would have scattered all over the world, and surely they told their descendants about the flood would not be surprised to see stories similar to the Bible's account in all over the world. So we're going to actually do an activity that explores that in just a moment. The men in the back, Craig and Roy, are going to come around with a worksheet to give to you, but don't read it yet. So I want to ask you a couple questions first. Speculate with me for a minute. We've all played the game telephone. So as things get passed down, we would expect that they would not be completely the same as the original. Especially because God is not there to, um, to preserve it like he preserves his word. But what are some things in the, or along those lines, what are some things in the Genesis account of the flood that you would expect might become changed as they get passed down? Yeah, Julie. Yeah, the time, right? The, the different time indicators, they might be changed, might be omitted. What else do you, might you expect to be changed as these stories get passed down? San yeah, Francisco. Okay, the measurements of the ark. Good. What else? Yes, Steve. All right, so maybe remove God or change who the God is. What else? Yeah, Dwayne. Right, probably Noah's name would change. All right, maybe how many people were on the ark. But what are some things from the Genesis account that you might expect would stay the same? Be preserved in these different flood legends. Yeah, the idea of a boat, right? What else might be, or what would we expect to be preserved? Yeah, Francisco. Right, so animals were also on the ark, or all on the boat, and they survived. Eric, are you going to say something? Yeah, okay. Something else? Dwayne. Okay, we might expect that it was a, um, a global flood that was described in these other legends. Good, so some various ideas there. Let's actually take a look at three summaries of other flood legends. Now you can take a look at the worksheet. This worksheet has basic facts about flood legends from Hawaii, ancient Babylon, and Assyria from the part of the Epic of Gilgamesh. So take a minute or two to read through these different bullets, and then take about three minutes to answer the questions below them. We'll come back in about five minutes and discuss, and you're going you're gonna to be looking for similarities between these flood legends, then see how they're different from the scriptures, and then ask, would the scriptures be, from looking at these things and from, look, from remembering the text, is it likely that the scriptures are the original source, or did the scripture borrow from other legends? Questions about what you're about to do? All right, take about five minutes. You can feel free to work with those sitting next to you.
about another minute. Okay, let's talk through these questions a little bit. As you read through this, you probably reacted like I did, which is, wow, this is remarkable. And yet, it should be what we expect. What themes are common to these legends? Or what's something that's common between these legends represented here in the Bible? There's the boat. What else? Yeah. Yeah, sacrifices at the end. What else? Yes. That's right, a person and his family are saved by going on the boat. What else? Yeah, Magda. Okay, yeah, for two of them, there's a, a vision or a command to build the boat um, from the Gilgamesh epic and also from the scriptures. And I think maybe one of the other ones. Something else? Yes. Yeah, for a, a couple of these, there's a specific mention of birds being sent out after the flood. So you see actually some surprising details actually preserved in these various flood legends. Um, dove is mentioned, let's see, is the dove mentioned? Yeah, in the, the Gilgamesh epic, there's a dove mentioned, very good carol. Um, the other one simply just says birds, the, the Babylon account. But it's, it's a god or gods who send this flood judgment. A man and his family are saved. The man builds a boat. The man takes animals onto the boat. The boat eventually lands on a mountain. The man offers sacrifices afterwards after the flood is finished. What are elements, though, that are missing that were in the biblical account but are not in these or not in all of these? Say that again? That's right. We don't have any indication of where the waters came from. What else? Yeah, Eric. True, right? The whole reason for the flood seems to be missing. Uh, the wickedness of man and the violence on the earth. What else? Yeah, Donna. Okay, right. Right, so the... Right, right. So the, the details about God have been changed or are missing. Um, the Hawaii version does mention that the God, is it the Hawaii one? Um, yeah, the creator God, Cain or Kanye, something like that. <coughs> he, he appears in the story. But yeah, certainly the identity of the God who, who sent the flood has changed. The wrong dimensions of the ark, 
Uh, details regarding the flood timing are also missing. God's rainbow promise is missing. So definitely some things were lost. But still, this is quite remarkable. Does it make more sense, though, to say that these accounts were developed from the Bible, that the Bible was the original source, and that the truth there is, uh, is accurate, or that the biblical account borrowed from these others? And why? Yeah, Julie. Right, so it'd be difficult to get the details of the Bible from just one of these, or even from all of these, because they're all different. So there's certainly that. Yeah, Eric. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not exactly... That's a, that's a good um, observation that you're making in terms of the timing of these texts when they were recorded. Um, I'm not exactly sure the dates of the, the various writings of these. Certainly the biblical account is um, was written in a very ancient time. But there's also, probably the main thing and most important to this question is, we know that the Bible is the word of God. We know that it's obviously going to be the original because it comes from God. It's going to be totally accurate. But also there are some details in these other accounts that just... They don't make sense. Now, what's, a, what's one thing maybe here that, if you really think about it, that couldn't happen? Yeah, Rob. All right, well, certainly we're going to reject the, the polytheistic view based on what the scripture says. Brian, something? Right, right. Cube would not be a good idea for a boat because if it's equal on all sides, it's easily going to tip over and then you've got a real big problem inside that ark. <clears throat> or also the, the boat in Hawaii, it's a canoe with a house on it. It doesn't seem like the most seaworthy vessel. <clears throat> so we're going to talk more about the real boat next week. We'll see that it actually was a very well-designed and a perfect choice for preserving Noah and the animals through the flood. So aside from the fact that the Bible is the word of God, its details are more plentiful and they make more sense than the ones in these other flood legends. But, as I said, these differences in detail are not surprising. We would expect as centuries go by, details of the flood would be lost, exaggerated, or simplified. New elements might be added. But the fact that they exist, and these are just three examples, there there are many more, the fact that they exist just is further testimony to the global flood. Because all people indeed were affected by the flood, only a few families survived, and they passed down that story to people all over the world who ended up scattering all over the world. This is exactly what we'd expect from a global flood. We are running out of time. There's some good application questions that unfortunately we can't get to, but I do want to mention application question number two from the book, which says, as we talk with unbelievers, should we use the various flood legends from around the world to prove that the biblical flood really happened? No. No, please don't do that. The flood legends are consistent with the biblical account, and they do give further testimony to it, but they cannot prove it. The text of the Bible itself is always the best way to prove the Bible to people. 
Remember, it's the Bible that shows people reality. We can't prove the Bible with something else. So this is the way we would say it. The Bible is true in its account of the global flood, and based on that, we would expect to see flood legends around the world, and we do, which just points to the truthfulness of the Bible. If these legends did not exist, it'd be okay. The Bible would still be completely trustworthy. Anyways, I wanted to mention that. Other good applications questions there. Other questions you might have, come see me afterwards. That's it for today. Let's just look again at our memory verse. 2 Peter 2.5. We have two more weeks with this. Let's read it together one more time. And God did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. Thank you. Let's pray. Lord God, you are the creator. And it's so sweet, God, how you showed your compassion and your faithfulness in the flood and afterwards, God. You are too good to let evil go unpunished. You're too too righteous, too kind. You had to destroy the evil, Lord. And yet you preserved Noah. You were generous to him. You preserved his family. You preserved the animals. You preserved us. And you continually have done that. You would never send another flood. And you continually give us a reminder that you are faithful to your covenant in the rainbow. Oh God, how sweet is your gospel. Lord, make us bold with it. Give us the boldness. Give us that true persuasion of you that you are lovely and good, that we just want to talk about you with everyone. In Jesus' name, amen.